Dr. Jeffrey J. Kripal is the Associate Dean of the School of Humanities and holds the J. Newton Razor Chair in Philosophy and Religious Thought at Rice University, where he chaired the Department of Religion for eight years and helped create the GEM program, a doctoral concentration in the study of Gnosticism, Esotericism, and Mysticism that is the largest program of its kind in the world. He presently helps direct the Center for Theory and Research at the Esalen Institute in Big Sur, California, where he served as the chair of board from 2015 to 2020. Jeff is the author or co-author of 12 books. He specializes in the study of extreme religious states and the revisioning of what he calls a new comparativism. He is presently working on a three-volume study of paranormal, paranormal excuse me, currents in the history of religions and the sciences for the University of Chicago Press, collectively entitled The Superstory. Without further introduction, I give you Dr. Jeff Kripal. So I guess my first question is, as I've started to interview more and more religious studies people, just out of a personal interest, I found that there's a very interesting dichotomy that might serve us to start with between sort of people who approach religious studies from a secular pr perspective and those who sort of approach it from a religious perspective. Yeah, And I'm curious in sort of reading your bio, if maybe you'll enter in a third perspective that I haven't really interacted with yet, yeah. but I'm curious how, how you would answer that question. Yeah, I think it's a real, it's a real division or a real conversation, I would say, in the field. I think it's a very healthy conversation. Hmm. Um, I don't think there's any study of religion without secularism, by the way. Um, I think secularism made possible the study of religion. And so I, I value it and I use all kinds of, I think what most people would perceive as secular critical methods. Um, having said that, I'm most interested in the study of religion that take the religious dimension as real, frankly, um, but not as literal. <laughs> That's, I guess that there is a third space here. Yeah. Um, I'm most interested in people studying religion who think something real is happening, but are not going to sign their names to the particular religion or the particular doctrine. And that's certainly where I'm at. Um, it's a both and approach, as I call it. Interesting. I'm fascinated. You, you said secularism made possible the study of religion. I think I can start to feel that out, but what exactly do you mean? Well, if you look at if you look at the people who founded the discipline in the 17th and 18th and 19th centuries, you know, they often ended their lives or spent a lot of their lives in prison or mm -hmm. they were fired um, or they experienced all kinds of censorship or harassment. Um, religions are not very good <laughs> at, at asking the kinds of questions scholars of religion really want to ask. Um, <laughs> to put it mildly, um, you know, we're interested in questions of sexuality and gender and race and class and history and how tech, how scriptural texts are edited and put together and essentially how religious experience is constructed hmm. by historical and psychological and social processes. And so that's not exactly popular um, with people who take their religions as themselves. And I would say, you know, the bottom line is intellectuals who study religion think religion is constructed. It's a, it's a, it's a something that happens to us in the course of a life 
where religious people think we're born particularly religious or we're born with a particular religion and scholars of religion are like no you're not you're 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 born a human being and you learn to be a particular religious identity the religious identity is constructed it's not it's not given to you at birth and so that's really the fundamental difference i think and secularism as a political organization allowed the study of religion because it separated the authority of the religion from the nation state essentially um in cultures in which the religious authority is the nation state you don't have the study of religion it's not allowed it's suppressed in cultures where religious faith and national identity is separated you have the study of religion because religious identity is not prioritized or privileged in, in any particular political way interesting so for example i'll give you an example i mean it's obvious simple example take the us uh the constitution clearly separates church and state you know regardless of what people want to say the constitution clearly separates them that that gives people the freedom to be religious in all kinds of ways that they could not be in europe by the way in the 17th or 18th century so it allows for a much more diverse and robust religiosity but it also takes away the political power of a particular religious tradition so that they can all flourish <laughs> so secularism doesn't mean no religion it, it can actually mean even more religion hmm. Um, but it can also mean no religion. I mean, it meant no religion in the Soviet Union. It meant no religion in, in Maoist China. But it's it's meant more religion in the U.S. Um, so secularism is a, it's a complicated thing, and there are different forms of it. Um, but I don't think you get the study of religion without it, because the religions will suppress the study of religion. Interesting. And so it sounds like that original dichotomy that I posed, sort of religious versus secular, how, how has that affected maybe your studies where you're going to bump up against the earliest foundational scholars of religion are going to be within that religion well, itself, right? Yes. Yeah, so even today, so to even today, I, I don't I don't want to give numbers because I don't know the numbers. I don't know statistics, but I would say most of the people I interact with began in a religious tradition and they were super religious, but they had questions that their religious traditions would not allow them to ask, much less answer. And so they end up leaving those traditions and they back into the academy or the university or college. It wasn't as if they were born saying, I want to be a professor of religion. Again, you know, no kid does that. It's a weird kid. Yeah. <laughs> don't, don't, don't trust that kid. Um, but, but people do back into the field because it's the only space, the only social space mm. in the culture that allows one to spend one's life asking these questions and not being ob obedient to a particular religious tradition. Interesting. And I'm going to ask you to generalize here. But I'm interested in breaking down sort of the subset, this uh, 
dichotomy into subset these people that are asking these questions and have backed into the institution or backed into the academy rather what do you think is in your experience the motivating factor to ask those questions is it are they sort of upset about the tradition that they were handed and saying like i wasn't allowed to ask this question and now there's a guy i think i get the sense with i don't know if you're familiar with bart airman Oh, sure. But I get the sense with Bart Ehrman sure. that he, a lot of his, yeah. at least his early career seemed like he was trying, he, he seemed upset almost at the things he was told as he was discovering how untrue they probably were. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I think a lot of us are, or were upset. And hmm. I think that being upset is entirely justified. Hmm. And it's, it's, it's a, it's an intellectual and spiritual response to somebody trying to essentially bullshit us sure and it's just honesty it's just honesty it's just a kind of spiritual and intellectual integrity that wants to know what happened wants to know the truth of whatever the question is it might be again about race it might be about sexuality or gender it might be about a scriptural text but they, but the person just wants to know. They want to ask those questions, and they want to when they want answers. And when you know we're essentially not told, or or the question is is actively avoided or suppressed, people get upset mm. for for obvious reasons. And secularism allows us to move on and to go go to go outside the religious tradition. We couldn't do that 500 years ago in Europe, by the way. People who did that 500 years ago were in physical danger. Um, people who do that now are in no physical danger in the U.S. They're actually, they could be in physical danger, by the way, in other cultures. Um, so it's, as I like to say, I mean, I don't like to say this, but it's true. The study of religion is the most dangerous enterprise that goes on in the university. I mean, you're, you are deconstructing people's identities and people's families and people's lives in a really clear way. And um, it's really tricky. Um, I don't, I don't want to underestimate how difficult and tricky it is because I deal with students every, every day or every week of my professional life. I mean, I know how tricky it is. I, I work with these young people and they are asking questions and they're asking very similar questions that I asked, you know, 40 years ago, whenever that was, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm old now. I, you know, um, but I remember being young. I, I remember that. <laughs> so it's, I think it's to answer your question. I think it's just about intellectual and spiritual honesty and integrity people want to know the other thing i'll say here's another thing that's even i think deeper one of the things you learn about religions is that they all began with people separating from their family religions hmm. you know religion religions don't develop out of peace and light and you know hugs they develop out of fights and debates and questions and people separate from their cultures. You know, this idea that religion is friendly to one's culture or family is just kind of nonsense, mm -hmm. uh, at least at the beginning of these religions. Uh, later on, yes, but certainly in their beginnings, these are often reform movements or, or revolutionary movements or 
prophetic movements that stand directly against the the tradition or faith or 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 family tradition that the person was born with you reminded me of the quote and i'm sure you're familiar with it i, I can't i don't know who to attribute it to but something about the margins giving us insight and it's mm -hmm. from if i might be butchering this but it's from the <clears throat> i think it's something like it's from the desert that we get the prophets not the temple yeah unfortunately well you get them actually from both uh <laughs> pro prophets come from temples too um but i you know we we have an approach at rice university to the study of religion i call it margins at the center mm. and what i mean by that it's really at the margins that change comes and that the tradition is challenged and so we're interested in general in religious movements that that were suppressed or were marginal so gnostic esoteric and mystical traditions didn't do so well by the way no. <laughs> particularly in europe and the west and but these are the ones i think well certainly i'm the most interested in because they tell us something very important about the cultures and about these human beings that that i think is quite remarkable um orthodoxy is important it's really important to study as well you don't get margins without a center but orthodoxy um, changes, by the way, from century to century, millennium to millennium. Um, it's not stable either. Right. But it often, and I'm not an excerpt, but it often appears and seems to argue that it is stable. Mm -hmm. Right. So then it has. It's this, not. It's not. <laughs> right. But it has this difficult thing to sort of contend with where you, how do you yeah. square that circle where you say. You know, orthodoxy is the sort of one true thing, and then it's like, but it changes over time. Well, you know, so I grew up in an orthodox tradition. I grew up Roman Catholic, and I was told lots of things about the stability and the ancient nature of the faith that are simply not true. Um, but you actually don't know they're not true until you study other religions. Sure. Um, and so I think that's why scholars of religion are so dangerous or so problematic for so many people is that they stand outside those traditions and they say things like I just said that no orthodoxy is not stable and no this is not true <laughs> I mean people don't want to hear that they they want to hear their their faith was always that so and it hasn't ever changed and it simply isn't so it simply isn't so you said earlier that religions are are real but not literal or yeah. that you what you appreciate about them is is whatever is real about them but not literal yeah i think i'm i might be misquoting you a little bit yeah no that's okay you can misquote me <laughs> what is that real part when i listen back to the tape i'll laugh at myself and okay. however i just butchered that but what is that real part that interests you the actual answer is i don't know mm. i don't think we can know either uh if you want a one-word answer for what that real part is i would say consciousness but i don't think we can think consciousness i don't think kevin and jeff can sit here and talk about consciousness and say anything reasonably accurate Interesting. i think i think consciousness is just consciousness it's just it's awareness it's present it's what you and i are in right now hmm. but we can't measure it we can't replicate it we can't it's not an object it's actually a subject it's it's hmm. you it's me so i'll give i'll give you a, i'll give you a concrete example so people who have had near-death experiences often talk to me a lot and they'll tell me about the vision of the other world and the afterlife and 
you know, some kind of out of body experience and often all kinds of paranormal abilities that, that reveal themselves after such a near death experience. And they all pretty much down to the last one think that what they saw and experienced is, is actually what the afterlife is. And I have to say to them, look, I know you think or believe that, but this person over here thinks or believes something different. And this person over here thinks or believes something because they had a different near-death experience. Mm -hmm. So clearly what we call the imagination is functioning in these experiences and it's forming and shaping them in specific ways. I think you actually did experience what comes after life, but I think it was filtered or mediated by your own cultural and psychological and social imagination. So, so that's what I mean. That's that's the, what I call the both and. It's like, yeah, you definitely contacted something, something very real, but that real can only speak in symbols and myths and stories. It cannot speak directly to us. It's like you want another metaphor. So it's like the it's like the fisherman floating on the ocean. He can't speak to the fish. Hmm. No matter what he does, he cannot speak to them. He cannot, he can catch them, you know, um, he can let them go. He can, I suppose, even eat them, but he cannot speak to them. Hmm. So that's, that's what I mean by that both and or that it's real, but a comparativist like myself takes these things as real, but not literally. That's what I meant by the phrase. Interesting. And, and Kevin, I mean, so again, that's a moral position because I'm taking everybody's near death experiences seriously. If you want me to believe yours, I gotta, I've got to dismiss all these others. Yeah. Well, I can't do that. Right. Why would why, I can't do that because it's not plausible to me. Why would I do that? Yeah. Because you say so. Right. You know, because, you know, you experienced right. the afterlife. You have, to believe, you have to believe me, Jeff. <laughs> yeah, I mean, come on. So, but I recognize that these people had profound experiences that were life-changing. And I do think consciousness can only speak to us, you know, in the in the symbols and myths of our own our own making and of our own understanding. I don't think it can speak to us directly. Interesting. I have a million questions that I think I could ask that would make me sound really woo-woo. Mm. But I'll just tip. This is woo-woo, by the way. Woo-woo is real, by the way. Uh, let me just tiptoe into that space a little bit. You said something about you, you do think some people that you talk to that had these near-death experiences or did in fact die. I don't actually know the details of these situations, but you said that they filter whatever they experience through their own, you know. I don't think they do that consciously, by the way, Kevin. Well, my question was, my guess is that we all go to the same place or not place after death, right? Mm -hmm. So is it the individualism of that recounting? Is that when they kind of come back into it, they have to think about the same way that if, if we could all somehow dream the same dream, we might all talk about it differently because we had different experiences? So first of all, we all wake up from our dreams, right? Right. But we dream differently. And it's that both end again that I'm trying to, to recognize. Hmm. 
I, I don't think these people consciously shape their or mediate their experiences. I think something, you know, the, the whole definition, for me, the definition of a true religious or a genuine religious experience is that it's given. There, is, there isn't an actual conscious human agency involved. It presents itself to the person as already established, as given. And this is what people don't understand about extreme religious experience. They think these people are making this up. They're not making it up. Sorry, they're not. But something something as or in them is in fact constructing it in such a way. And one of the metaphors I always use is a stained glass window. You know, I grew up with in this little town in Nebraska. Is, you know, the sun's the sun. <laughs> the light's the light. But it's shining through these windows. And those windows, guess what? Were constructed by an artist and with lead and, and glass. And they're telling stories that are based on scriptural texts that were also written by human beings. It's a very specific mythology that's being told in the stained glass windows. But the sun's the sun. And it's going to shine through into the Muslim mosque and into the Hindu temple and the Jewish synagogue. It's, it's going to be the same sun, but it's going to be an entirely different mythology or, mm. or narrative. Um, so that's that's too simple, Kevin, but that's that's essentially what I'm talking about is those people need, they need a story. They need something to live inside of, but that story is not universally shared. But it sounds like if I'm going to follow that analogy through, that while the story isn't universally shared, it sounds like you're sort of describing a common well water that all religions tap into. Is that? Yeah, too I far? am. I am. You know, so we call this perennialism in the study of religion, that there's some kind of core. I'm actually not a perennialist, and we can talk about why that is, but I do think there's a a base or a fundamental reality behind all this. And that's what I call consciousness. Um, I'll give you another example. I wrote a book, I co-wrote a book with a woman named Elizabeth Crone, who was struck by lightning in the parking lot of her synagogue in 1988. Wow. And had a very elaborate near-death experience and then developed all kinds of paranormal abilities afterwards. Huh. And, you know, Elizabeth and I talked for years about this, and we wrote this book together. And basically what Elizabeth says is that everyone gets the near-death experience they need or they want. Um, that, And in my, in my the, the phrase I use in the book is, we die into our imaginations. Hmm. But I don't think those imaginations are permanent. And I don't think Elizabeth thinks that either. You know, I think there is something beyond these near-death experiences or beyond these cultural imaginations that is that is that is even more real and i think that's that's what we can't talk about because it's not about words it's not about culture or descriptions it's it's something else entirely yeah um so that's i don't know that's just another way of talking about this you know but elizabeth is really clear that if you or i have a near-death experience we're not going to see what she saw we're not going to experience that because that's not what we need to see or experience. We'll, we'll see or experience something different. And so she operates with a very sophisticated kind of comparative understanding that the near-death experience is real, but it's also mediating some what the person needs to hear or see. Hmm. 
I have a few questions in, in one particular direction. Some of this is starting to remind me of as a very casual person who's interested casually in these things. Um, speaking to someone who's very serious about these things. This starts to remind me of like what I've read of Joseph Campbell. Yeah. Um, and I think he has this, he has a, is it, is it Zimmer? I think was his friend who has this quote. That's like the, it's like the best things we can't talk about the second best things, you know, we can only imagine, but can't, we don't have the words for, and it's like something like the third best things are what we actually talk about. So Heinrich Zimmer was a German Indologist and Joseph Campbell was an American uh, mythologist. And, and I know, I mean, I know quite a bit about each, each person. Campbell, you know, Campbell wrote this book called A Hero with a Thousand Faces. And his basic argu argument was, is that human beings tell different stories. They tell thousands of stories actually, but they're all rooted in the body and in its biological and instinctual needs. So he was he was a pretty sophisticated Freudian and Jungian at the same time. He saw myth as speaking accurately about the human condition, but of course also not literally. It's not clear to me where, if Campbell had some kind of transcendence in mind, I, I, I kind of doubt it just having read him a lot. Um, I do have transcendence in mind. I don't hmm. think it's just about the body. Um, I think the body's temporary. And I don't think consciousness is restricted to a human body. I think it's it's in animals, it's in plants, it's, it's in the whole universe. Interesting. So I don't associate consciousness with the brain or hmm. the human body. And I sometimes wonder if Campbell did. Um, I don't know that. I don't want to speak for him. Yeah. Um, but he, his style was incredibly important. He also talked about what he called the hero's journey, which was a particular structure of myth that you find in all different cultures. And he was very influential in Hollywood, by the way, as well. Um, a young man named George Lucas sure. picked up on Campbell and created Star Wars, frankly, uh, all, largely out of Campbellian hero myth themes. Hmm. So uh, Joe Campbell had a tremendous influence on American popular culture through Lucas. Um, and then Bill Moyers interviewed him and did a series called The Power of Myth and essentially made him famous. Hmm. But he died. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, like most authors and intellectuals, they die before their thought really gets taken up and they don't get to see it. And hmm. I think Campbell was seeing it right you know right as he i mean he saw star wars i mean star wars which came out before he died but i i don't know his dates but it's it's he dies right around or before the moyers comes out yeah i think within within two years i think yeah we can look it up but it's it's right around there he was also campbell was also really influential at a retreat center I've studied and written about and participated in called the Esalen Institute. So I, I actually know quite a bit about Joe Campbell. I know a lot. I know some of his friends and I've written about him as well. And um, hmm. super, super important individual for, for this, for this history. But yeah, not, but I'm not saying what he's saying, Kevin, to, to answer your question. Um, I think it's related, but it's, it's somewhat different. 
he's he's something of a hero of mine there's no pun intended there <laughs> yeah good yeah. well good yeah he does that's, you, that's your in, that's your introduction to the study of religion i i think everybody well at least in my experience my introduction to the study of religion was my own religious upbringing <laughs> oh okay what was that by the way Ro that was roman sort of cultural catholicism. roman catholicism yeah. yeah but uh and so was campbell's which is which was sort of um permissive in a way which yeah was very inviting i think yeah. but uh he has this interesting lecture to, to answer one of your thoughts there about sort of like kantian and yeah i guess kantian metaphysics in relation to his idea of consciousness and it sounds like campbell at some point in his life started to question uh it, it sounds like where you were headed with this sort of like the consciousness of plants and the consciousness of animals and i think there's like that kantian thing where if, if i drop this pen it knows exactly where the ground is that kind of thing and i th i think that campbell was really interested in like all right well there are parts of us that seem really mechanistic where mm -hmm. if, if we don't attribute consciousness to like the heliotropism of plants what do we say about our bodily functions where if we cut our you know if there, if we get a scrape or something and the cells rush to that and the white blood cells and the clotting whatever all these sort of mechanisms sort of take place in our body it sounded like campbell was really interested in the mechanistic nature of other plants and animals and and it seemed like he was rather agnostic as to whether or not that was consciousness yeah i i don't know actually i i don't know i just don't know enough about campbell to say hmm. i you know the the kantian stuff is important to to the academy i mean it's um the basic idea in Kant that, that comes through the academy is that you can never know the real as such. It always appears to you through, through what he called the a priori categories of things like space and time and causality, that these are sort of inbuilt into the human brain or mind, and we filter everything through these categories, but we can't actually see or experience reality as it really is. And you know, so there's a part of that I agree with, but but there's also a part of that I profoundly disagree with, mm. um, because a lot of the traditions I've studied do say you can experience reality as such. It's just it's just not going to appear as language or as an image or a symbol or a metaphor. You're you're going to experience consciousness as consciousness. You're going to be you're going to be being. Um, so I. I do disagree with the basic Kantian notion that a human being can't know the real as real. Hmm. But I think generally speaking, he's, he's absolutely correct that what people experience is, a, is an appearance and not the actual thing. I, that, that, that's usually true, but not always. Um, and so my, my own method is essentially to look at people's extraordinary experiences, certainly to treat them as phenomena, as appearances, but to suggest that they do tell us something about the nature of reality. So it's a kind of, it's not Kantian, but it's, it's, um, it certainly, I hope, honors what, what Kant was saying or trying hmm. to say. <clears throat> I hope you don't mind jumping around a little bit, but I'm so fascinated by how many really interesting esoteric things you're interested in. Yeah. But I'm also fascinated in sort of the origin of those thoughts. And you mentioned that you were raised Roman Catholic, but yeah. 
I, I think I know that your first book was about Hinduism. Yeah. I'm really interested in that jump, right? Yeah. And yeah. do you do you happen to remember what some of the first questions were that you were asking that started to get you in trouble? Oh, maybe, sure. Maybe back you into this whole thing? Of course. Yeah. I, you know, I've written about them. They're, these, this is all public knowledge because they're in my books. Hmm. I mean, all of my early questions were around male sexual orientation. Hmm. And I wanted to know why so many people who wanted to be priests or monks were gay. <laughs> you know, that was, and, and I say that with great affection. I, it wasn't a moral judgment. It was like, what's going on here? Because, yeah, you know, I, I was a confused, I was a confused, essentially straight kid, but I recognized that sexual orientation is actually pretty fluid and, mm. and malleable. And I was so struck by, um, I had been raised Roman Catholic and I had sort of heard all this condemnation really of, of male homosexuality, a kind of homophobic pathologization of it really from, from the church. But when, when I got to the seminary, it was, you know, in on the inside of the church, it was, a, it was this was basically a flamboyant club of, of closeted gay men, basically. And I don't mean that they were acting out. They, I don't think they were for the most part. I think they were very genuine and were trying to transform or sublimate this mm. into a, into a religious life. And we're doing it really well, frankly. Um, but I couldn't do that because I had nothing to sublimate. I was like, oh, wow, I don't, I actually don't love men um, the way, same way I love women. And so that was the big question I had. Mm. And I decided after many years that there actually was no place in the mystical traditions, at least for, for a man who was heterosexually oriented. You could be a heretic. Uh, you could be William Blake or Teilhard de Chardin or Jakob Wimmer or something and, and get, you know, expelled from the center of the tradition. But you couldn't be in, you couldn't represent the tradition in a, in a heterosexual mode because you needed a, a female deity, by the way, <laughs> to do that. And that, that's a big problem uh, in, in the West. So I got interested in Hinduism because of that. There are lots yeah. of there are lots of goddesses, by the by the way, in in Hinduism, and I wanted to see whether it worked out differently. And I concluded it didn't. <laughs> you know that that orthodoxy is always going to privilege a kind of sublimated male homosexuality or or, or queerness, to use a more contemporary term, and that straight people are going to be expelled from from and then they're going to end up in the margins or, or in the heresies um so that's that's still what i think kevin i that's a hard it's a hard message for people <laughs> to hear but it it's it's i think it's the historical truth um, yeah interesting I, yeah so that's that's what it wasn't a jump from catholicism to hinduism it was a natural kind of progression and it was just trying to ask a question in different cultural contexts because i wanted to see what was culture and what was more more uh, common or more more a part of our humanity so what was culture and what was so, sort of more elemental or innate mm -hmm. or yeah okay. i was i i think there's a kind of psychosexuality that gets linked to spirituality and religious vocation that's much more basic than than culture and i think there's something i think there's something really special about queerness by the way hmm. I, I think queerness is sacred and often um 
accesses reality in a way that straightness can't or does not. I think I think we're pretty dull. I mean, I can't speak for you, Kevin. I'm pretty dull. Um, and and be, being straight, what what happens to heterosexuality is it gets canalized into the social system. You know, you have children and you get a job and you you uphold society, but you don't you don't become one with God or you don't, you know, you don't develop a religious vocation, you're expelled from the religious vocation. And so <laughs> I don't know else. I just said that. I just spilled the beans, I guess. I um but I've spilled the beans many times. So yeah, I, I uh you'll excuse my facial <laughs> reactions. I've just never thought any of these things before ever in my life. Yeah, well, there but you I, go. But I have thought, um, I have thought some interesting things that might be not as tangential to, to the things you're thinking as I might have expected at first. But if so, I can, I pick some of these things apart, and I'm yeah, and yeah. I obviously, need to go read this book. <laughs> well, there there are many books, but I mean, let me just say one other thing before you pick it apart or pick it, pick at it. You know, when I when I describe these ideas in the abstract, people look at me and they're like, "Wow, you are you are one crazy dude." But <laughs> but when I uh, when I explain the ideas in the context of my life, they're like, "Wow, that makes a lot of sense." I I you know, then they start thinking about experiences in their own lives and and ideas or thoughts they had had, and they're generally quite struck by it. Um, and quite moved, frankly, because it's actually a pretty profound set of ideas, and it's a it's a kind of warm embrace of of queerness that I think they're not always expecting. Um, yeah. So anyway, so I have all sorts of questions about, and this isn't necessarily that I disagree with. I I don't know if I understand it enough to disagree with it yet, but. I'm going to just assume some of the premises <clears throat> because I can start to see a little bit of a through line with your experience at the seminary. You said something about being sort of like straightness, being expelled from the mystical tradition and excuse yeah. my paraphrase. No, that's what I said. <laughs> but then it sounds like you sort of came to an understanding of why that was when you yeah. said something like we're quite dull. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so I, I guess I'm really interested in, I, I again, I have all sorts of uh, foundational questions. Like, is the, do we have any sense? And I'm sure this is really hard to measure of like what number of people go into these traditions that are could yeah, be labeled did. as yeah gay or queer or yeah. however you're using those words. So we we did we certainly had statistics from sociologists uh, of religion when I was writing about these things in the 90s. Um, I don't know what the statistics are now. I haven't followed this conversation for a long time, hmm. Kevin. Um, but certainly in the 90s, you know, the the rates range from 30 to about 80% of seminarians would self-identify as, as gay or, or as same-sex. Um, and we also knew that cross-culturally, about 11 or 12% of individuals in any culture would would be would be um, same sex oriented, so the numbers were either three times or eight times <laughs> what you what you would expect if it was random. Uh, so it's not random at all. Um, hmm. Celibacy, in particular, in Catholicism, selects, at least in the eighties, 
for for homo, for for homosexuality or a queer orientation, and the reason is very simple. Um, if you if you're a queer uh, gay or queer Catholic male in 1980, not not now, I'm not talking about now. In 1980, you don't have any real social options. Any any place in society in which you're going to express yourself queerly, you're going to be condemned. But if you join the church and become a priest or, or a monk or a celibate, you will be praised and you will get all kinds of cultural rewards for that. And you'll also get to live with other men and, by the way, worship a, a divine man. And so there are all kinds of ways that affirm your, 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 your spiritual sexuality um, through celibacy. And so I'm not... I'm not questioning those. I'm just trying to understand those and affirm those. Um, and there's nothing in society that can help you. Now, today it's different um, because there's there's much less taboo around the topic. And I suspect more men are are just simply living in society as as queer men. And and thankfully so. I'm happy about that. But I, I think that's going to have an impact on, on religious vocation. Interesting. So that's that's kind of where I went with that thought. And you know, my my latest work, Kevin. You know, it's it's actually not about sexuality at all. It's about the paranormal, but in some ways, it is about sexuality. And then, and the way I put it is, I spent the first half of my life queering religion, and I'm going to spend the second half of my life weirding religion. <laughs> I'm 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 always interested in what doesn't fit in. Um, and I'm not suggesting that homosexuality fits into Roman Catholicism. It it doesn't officially. It's it's a it's still pathologized. It's still condemned, um, <clears throat> particularly by the Pope that just passed away. By the way, Pope Benedict, mm -hmm. but not Francis. You know, Francis is has a much looser and I think much more accurate and realistic vision of sexual orientation in the priesthood and. I'm not sure he'll win that debate, but he—he—he's my kind of guy, by the way. He's Francis. Francis knows, and uh, <laughs> well, you know. But that doesn't mean again that the that the church as a whole will will side with Francis versus Benedict. Um, I hope it does on that particular issue. I really do, but but I don't know that. And I, I gave up. By the way, I gave up on the tradition, Kevin. I don't have time. I. I mean, life is short, and I, I'm not going to sit here and wait around for the church to catch up with this, because it's, it's not going to catch up. It might happen in 100 years, but it ain't going to happen tomorrow. At the Anselm Institute, where so, so, what, so what does a straight person do who's yeah. really interested in mystical thoughts? Yeah. Well, what communities think, do you join? I mean... I'm guess I'm I guess I want to revisit like what that limitation actually looks like yeah. that you were describing earlier. So like why is it exactly in your estimation that there's a, a mystical limitation to straightness? Yeah, because um is because your because your psychosexuality, the energies get canalized by society into procreation and, and work and, and family. Hmm. And your your psychosexuality, your energies uh are not sublimated into the religious life and into prayer and, and meditation and, and liturgy and things like that. 
I mean, it's 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 very much it's very much a Freudian reading or a post-Freudian reading that look, we only have so much life energy. And and that's either going to get used into these social ends or it's going to get used into these religious ends. And you it can't do both. Mm-hmm. Now, having said that, Kevin, I, I I don't believe that that straight people can't have mystical experiences. Of course, that's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. They have them all the time. Um, but they tend to have them outside orthodox traditions, and they tend to have them in tr- very traumatic moments. So, like near-death experiences, or illnesses, or or life events that that don't have to do with orthodoxy. That that's mm. essentially my argument. Because we're straight guys are part of the same reality that that queer people are are part of. It's the same. It's the same reality. It's the same consciousness. It's the same God. Um, so of course we can experience that too, but but not within the parameters of of the religious traditions in general. When did you come to Gnosticism? It's interesting that you would go to Hinduism first, right? Yeah. When did you sort of return to the non-canonical? Yeah. Well, I got. Catholic- I got expelled from the study of Hinduism. You know, I was, you, you don't say these things and remain popular with, with people. So I, in the nineties, I was, I was the poster boy for the harassed and censored and and condemned mm. scholar. And I got interested in the Eslin Institute and the counterculture and the American counterculture, because essentially the founder or the co-founder of Eslin, a man named Michael Murphy read my work uh, on Hinduism and was just kind of blown away by it in a in a positive sense, which of course is how I intended it. It's very positive, ecstatic writing. And he invited me out there and I got over the years, it took about three or four years, I realized that, wow, the whole counterculture is a whole different zone. It's filled with people of all types. It's not bound to the religions. And it hasn't really received any scholarly attention that I, certainly I wanted to give it. Mm-hmm. And so I, I spent you know six or seven years writing this big book called Eslin America and the Religion of No Religion. Mm-hmm. And I looked at these kind of post-Christian uh, secular forms of spirituality that ran through the counterculture and through the Eslin Institute. And that's at the same time, I got really interested in Gnosticism because Gnosticism was essentially a spirituality that developed in the Mediterranean world in the first few centuries of the common era. And it itself was expelled and condemned and repressed in ways that I felt were very similar to the American counterculture. And I felt that scholars of religion in particular often inhabit Gnostic positions and, uh, and that the comparative study of religion really came out of the American counterculture. It did not come out of these previous cultural moments that that people think that it did. It, it, at least in the States, it came out of the 60s and 70s, and often, frankly, psychedelics and, and the devotional attitude towards Asian gurus and lamas mm. and, and roshis. Uh, and so I was I was trained to do all that. I was trained to think about all those Asian traditions. And I wanted to think about how these young Americans picked up on all of this in the sixties and seventies and how rock and roll and psychedelics and Asian religions all kind of came together. 
so that that's how I got there. It was it was actually very organic again, Kevin. It wasn't it wasn't a leap. It was pretty natural hmm. development. Interesting. And that book is called Enslum America. Um, well, it depends on which book. So the the book on the counterculture is called Esalen. Esalen, sorry. And the subtitle is America and the Religion of No Religion. Again, secularism, but but a kind of secularism that's mystical and that allows for all kinds of different religious orientation. And then at the same time, I wrote a book called The Serpent's Gift, Gnostic Reflections on the Study of Religion. And that's that's this argument that scholars of religion inhabit Gnostic positions. And, you know, it works from the Garden, the, the Garden of Eden myth or story. And it basically says. The hero is the snake. <laughs> the 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 nasty character is actually God in that story, who who's trying to prevent this young couple from knowledge, and it's the snake who's giving them knowledge. And so, you know, the it's it's a playful kind of reading of that story. And like, look, scholars of religion are basically the snake, and hmm. we're going to get in trouble with this God, and uh, and of course we do. Um, so that's what I mean by Gnosticism. It's a kind of direct knowing of, of one's own divinity and one's own reality that that gets into a lot of trouble and, and stands against the, the God of the traditions. Huh. Wow, this is fascinating. And what does the, the Enselin the Institute actually do? And what, what is your, when you go there, what does that look like? Yeah. Well, okay. So it started in 1962. And the answer is it's been many things, you know, at the Esalen Institute, it's a different institute every decade. Hmm. It started before the counterculture in 62. The counterculture really gets going in about 64. And its earliest interests were in psychedelics and religion. Hmm. And the question was not legal. These, these, these substances were not illegal in 1962. The question was how can how does one experience God on a mushroom or, or on a, or on a human made molecule like LSD? How, how is that even possible? Hmm. And of course it is possible. It happens all the time, but, but the question was, well, how, how does, how does that relate to these religious traditions that claim you have to believe X, Y, or Z, or you have to, you know, have performed such and such a ritual. And it was also really interested in Asia, particularly Hinduism and Buddhism and Taoism. And it became one of the nodes. Esalen was really one of the mecca points for the hippies in the American counterculture in the 60s and early 70s. And then in the 70s and 80s, it became something else, the 90s and 2000s and so on. I My first trip there was in 98. Um, and I sit on the board now. So I'm not I'm not a neutral voice, Kevin. So don't. I'm not speaking as a historian or, or someone neutral anymore. I'm speaking as someone who really believes in the place and is trying to nurture the place. And mm. the basic idea there is that no one captures the flag. There is no one teacher or one doctrine that gets to hold the Institute. It's a sort of um, an experiment. It's a long experiment for different teachers and different practices to come in and to, um, you know, work with people 
Um, and so there's there's two there's two there's two levels of Esalen. There's the public programming, which anybody can sign up for, and and then there's what's called the CTR, the Center for Theory and Research, which was which is the dimension I help direct. Hmm. And it's about six to eight meetings every year that are that are entirely private and that are invitation only. And that's not because we're snobs. It's because we're often talking about things that are difficult and privacy and confidentiality serve the conversation. Hmm. Um, and those themes are usually of a parapsychological or of a um, e ecological or a diplomatic um, uh, nature. So there's, there's a strong element of Russian American diplomacy, by the way, hmm. that's been there since the early seventies. Uh, there's a very strong parapsychological element around the survival of bodily death and, and paranormal abilities. And there's a very strong ecological or environmental sensibility there that's been there for, again, 40, 50 years. Um, so it, it's kind of stood for things that are now coming into the public in a, in a pretty dramatic way, but, but they, they've stood, they've been on that side for, for a long time. Interesting. I want to ask you about your, uh, mission of weirding religious studies in a second but before i do does the does the book the immortality key has does that mean anything to you brian yeah yeah. Yeah, yeah sure sure yeah because i know that and uh i think charlie stang is also on the board yeah he is charlie's on our board mm -hmm. and i think he does some work with charlie and i basically run the center for theory and research together okay with the co-founder michael murphy Oh, wow. <clears throat> and, I, and I know Brian well. I mean, I blurb that book and the book, that book is a really um, powerful example of the kinds of ideas that, that were talked about at Esalen in the 60s, but were not yet developed in the same mm. way. Brian's book is really the kind of the furthest or the most contemporary development of a set of ideas that have been around for 30 or 40 years. Yeah. Interesting. Um, Brian actually he said, he, said he, he says new things. Don't get me wrong. It's not. Yeah. I mean, what's there are so many things about Brian's book that are important, but you know, one of them is his use of things like archaeochemistry and and sort of new new scientific um, methods that can figure out what these people were drinking or eating in a sure. way that we could only speculate before with texts. Yeah. But it turns out the speculations were basically correct. <laughs> Um, so, you know, Brian gives us a reason to think, uh, these things in a way that, uh, the scholarship on ancient texts and, and psychedelics had suggested or, or, or hypothesized, but hmm. couldn't actually establish. So it sounds like you were already, though you didn't necessarily have the archaeochemical proof, you were, you were already on board with some of those findings and their implications of Christian history and oh uh, oh yeah oh absolutely I mean I don't you know I don't know about specific cases I mean those are always speculative but the idea that the history of religions is based on altered states I think is just so obvious it isn't even worth sure. talking about I mean it's like duh um, and that human beings have been adjusting things forever I mean duh I mean it's just like oh my god that's so obvious can't can't we just can't we just accept that? 
uh, I mean, do you, you think human beings haven't been eating magic mushrooms for hundreds of thousands? Come on, just wake up, you know? I mean, <laughs> so I just, oh my gosh. And, you know, human beings seek, we seek out altered states. Hmm. You know, even if it's through something like alcohol or, or coffee, which is what I'm drinking now, these sure. are drugs. These are drugs. Yeah. These are these are psychoactive substances, and it's what human beings do. So stop it. Just stop the nonsense. And um, so that's kind of my attitude towards that. Yeah, interesting. That reminds me of Michael Pollan's. Oh, it's your mind on plants. Oh yeah, my yeah. Michael's Michael's great. I yeah. I know Michael Pollan, and I've read How to Change Your Mind, and hmm. uh, I'm absolutely on board. I think. Yep, that's it. <laughs> so I want to be uh, mindful of your time, but I'm really interested in in your latest endeavor and interests in paranormal. And I'm, I'm sure that's not the right word, but your interest in UFOs and <laughs> I like yeah. your branding of sort of weirding weirding yeah. things up. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have a second to maybe introduce me to that? Yeah. So I mean, I, I talk a lot about what I call the impossible, and the reason I like that phrase is it first of all it makes people comfortable. They're uncomfortable with paranormal, by the way, sure. um, for reasons I think are not justified. Interesting. Uh, the term was, the, the paranormal was, was coined in French in 1903 hmm. by, by a professional lawyer and psychologist and by the name of Joseph Maxwell. And paranormal meant essentially something that was natural, part of the world, but we didn't yet understand scientifically. And I think hmm. that's a perfectly good framing of what's going on. I have no trouble with it. I actually love the word paranormal because it's cool. Yeah, <laughs> uh, people like it, especially people, with the French accent. It sounds very cool. Paranormal, yeah. yeah. I mean, <laughs> but it does make intellectuals and scientists nervous. I'm like, okay, so let's talk about the impossible. The impossible is not impossible at all. And what I try to argue intellectually is that actually what you consider impossible is just a function of your assumptions that, that reality is doing weird stuff all the time that doesn't fit into your model. These things are impossible in your framework, but they're actually not impossible at all. And the, the model or the, the story I always tell is, you know, the French countryside in the 1700s where farmers kept telling the city intellectuals that rocks were falling from the sky and burning up in their fields. And the intellectuals were like, that is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Sure. Rocks cannot fall from the sky. Just don't be so stupid. These are dumb farmers. But of course, rocks do fall from the sky. And But what, what the intellectuals needed to do was change their view of, the, of outer space and, mm. and the sky. And of course, that's what they eventually did. And then they figured out that the farmers were right all along mm. and that they were just reporting what they were experiencing. And I think the same is true for all of this paranormal stuff from near-death experiences to precognitive dreams to telepathic communicate it, it all happens all the time people are just describing their experience and you know people are saying that's not possible i'm like that's that's only not possible in your philosophical framework just let it go and and listen to the people listen to these individuals and so that's what i mean by weirding 
religion. Historically, these experiences have been framed religiously. Um, today, they're not always framed so. Um, they don't need to be framed religiously. They can be framed in other ways. Mm. Um, so that, but they are weird in the sense of they don't fit into the reigning paradigm. There, there is a reporting issue though, right? Where you have the farmers. If the farmers are like, "Hey, rocks are falling from the sky," then they turned out to be objectively correct. But if they were to assign some narrative to those rocks and yep. say, well, the gods right. are upset because of this is happening and right. the bells are too loud in the city and now they're throwing rocks at us, right? The gods are throwing right. rocks at us. Of course, that that narrative would probably, I would hope that we would all say that that's, that's gone a step too far. Yeah, so would I. In the reporting that's, why I do, that's why I don't literally believe religions. Right, 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 of course. <laughs> in the reporting of these paranormal activities or whatever, um, how do you sort of parse out what's the rock falling from the sky and what is the, you know, the gods hurling them? Well, very carefully. It's, sure. it's the joke <laughs> I, or the answer. I, again, I don't think we know Kevin. So, so let's take the, let's take the UFO as an example here. Um, you know, I think UFOs are very real. I think people like see them and experience them all the time, but I don't believe the gods are throwing rock story, yeah. you know, which, which in this case is alien invasion. You know, mm -hmm. the, the story today is these are extraterrestrial ships and they're invading our airspace and they're threats. I'm like, no, they're not. That's just your story. That's just your, that's just your military nationalist mythology that's going to get you money for the Pentagon or whatever, whatever it is you're trying to do. Mm -hmm. But that's not, that's not how African-Americans experience UFOs. It's not how indigenous American cultures experience UFOs. It's not, it's not how anybody else experiences these. Why should I believe your story? And so, yeah, that's the, that's the gods were throwing rocks. Sure. Um, and that's what I meant in the beginning of our conversation about this both and the phenomenon is real, but the mediation is not. The, the symbolic frame is is we need to be very suspicious of. Wow. Yeah. And I think I know you said that at the beginning, but now looking back on our conversation that that enters in a very interesting and clear and, through line for, for your interests. And I don't think, Kevin, just to make it even weirder, I don't think that the narrative of the gods throwing rocks is comes after the experience. I think the experiences are often shaped by the gods throwing the rocks. In other words, the, the cultural mythology is not post-experience. It's often internal to the experience itself. The experience presents itself in whatever the cultural narrative is. Mm. And so there's a kind of trickiness here or a yeah. kind of elusiveness. The phenomena itself is tricky, is elusive. It cannot be trusted. Hmm. On the other hand, it's happening. Sure. So let's be let's be sophisticated about it. Interesting. But as well, I think you sort of said earlier, it 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 the phenomenon is happening, but it's not happening the way the narrative is purporting. Interesting. Right. I'll sometimes I'll say, you know, I don't believe in beliefs. 
but I believe in belief. <laughs> in <laughs> other words, by that? well, that, that these things are shaped, you know, truly shaped by people's belief, but I don't believe that belief. Yeah. I mean, because <laughs> because I can see these same things in other cultures and times and they're they're showing up differently. Yeah, interesting. Do you what is your do you have sort of a model? I mean, do you have sort of a hey, the I think like in statistics, something like the the average or the mean is the, the most basic statistical model that we have or something like that. Do you do the same thing where, okay, you have UFOs and you have this narrative and then you have, you know, an, an ancient civilization that had this narrative that explained UFOs. Do you try to draw the, the average line or what, what do you do with all this as a comparativist? Is that a... Is that well, a first of all, the average line is almost always wrong. Um, you know, <laughs> and statistically, of course, the anomaly is is always way up here or way down here it's actually sure. not the norm um interesting and so i'm most interested in those anomalies and i think what statistics do is it levels everything out sure it levels everything out into a banal uh norm that i think is almost always wrong um so i'm not a big fan <laughs> of statistics i'm not a big fan of numbers by the way i think numbers lead us astray um so you know the answer. I think the question I'm hearing in your question is, "What do you think the UFOs are?" And <laughs> my answer is, "I don't know." Yeah. And I and I'm not being opaque, and I'm not trying to sure be clever. What I do know is that people who say they know what UFOs are are full of it. Hmm. They're they're either lying or they're grossly misinformed. And and so what the people I most trust about the UFO phenomena are always the people who say, I don't know. I don't know what these things are. I'm as puzzled as anyone, but I know they're happening. I know they're part of our reality. Does that default disposition, does that map on to your disposition towards religions themselves yeah, where you're yeah. sort of like anybody anybody who says like they know exactly what god is you're like okay you're you're actually out of the conversation yeah it does it maps exactly on i think ufos are religious phenomena um and i think trying to shoot down ufos is kind of like trying to shoot down souls or spirits it's it, it's a bad idea it's a really bad idea <laughs> um I think it's a fantastic misperception of what's happening. I think I think the UFO has something to do with religion and the soul and the afterlife and things are communicating with us, but we keep misperceiving it as a as a military threat or as a mm. as a machine in the sky. And I just I just think, wow, you are so wrong. Yeah. Um, but that doesn't mean I know what a soul or the afterlife is. I don't think we do know. And I th I think, again, I take that seriously, you know, to speak in academic terms, really sophisticated mystical literature is apophatic, by which I mean it takes apart whatever you think of God or, or ultimate reality. It, it, it says we don't know. Um, apophasis is Greek for saying away. You you say away everything. You deconstruct everything. You deny any kind of objective knowledge 
for the sake of what's actually happening, which is, again, about consciousness. And that's not an object. It's, it's like the eye trying to eye itself. It can't do it because the eye is the eye and it's, it's, it's eyeing. It's just eyeing, you know? <clears throat> the, the, uh, you, you said you, you prefer the, well, you like paranormal, but you use the word impossible. Yeah. And of course, science seems predicated on Sorry, the idea. I just hit a button. Oh, no. <laughs> there we go. Sorry, I there we go. You. There we go. I think si science, at least, you know, this, I'm trying to square this with what you were saying, seems predicated on the idea that we have to be able to say what is impossible, right? And you say, of course, that, well, you know, that, that changes, right? Anybody who says science is fixed sort of isn't truly scientific that they're just like slowly pushing out in a methodical way so yeah go ahead I, I think to try to punctuate that question if it if if it even is one how do you try to usher in a methodical study of these things where you, you said the statistics kind of levels everything the alternative, though, is sort of knowing every data point very, very well. <laughs> and of course, you know, it looks like you have a lot of books behind you, but not every mind can do that, right? Yeah. So for me, the answer is comparison. And comparison basically involves putting as many things on the table as you can. Hmm. And I know that's limited, but allowing all those things to shape your conclusions. And I think what science has done is it's taken things off the table that it can't explain hmm. until it gets to this little kind of sliver of reality. And it says, oh, well, we can explain everything. And I'm like, no, you can't. You can only explain what's on your table because you've taken everything off your table you can't explain. Sure. So I, I'm not anti-science. I think science can do all kinds of wonderful things. I think technology can do all kinds of wonderful things. But it can't know consciousness. Hmm. It, science can only know objects, material objects in, in a kind of spatio-temporal reality. And it can manipulate that material reality in interesting ways for our own practical purposes, whatever those might be. But it, it's not telling us anything about consciousness. Um, it can't. Because consciousness is not an object in spatio-temporal reality. Consciousness is that which is looking out at spatio-temporal reality and probably creating that spatio-temporal reality. So it's, you know, it's like the projector here. You know, we're looking at a screen in a theater and we're just, we're saying, well, we can explain everything on the screen. I'm like, I know you can, but there's a, there's a freaking projector behind you throwing everything up on the screen. Yeah. What do you have to say about the projector? And of course, Nothing. It doesn't exist. That's the answer. I'm like, oh, duh. Yeah. Uh, Plato's allegory of the cave comes. Yeah, it is. It is. It is Plato's allegory of the cave. And I'm, you know, I'm. I'm like everyone else. I'm the prisoner chained to the floor, looking at shadows on the wall. But I recognize there's an outside. Yeah. And we're looking at shadows. Do you think so, anyone has been dragged out oh, of yeah. the cave? Absolutely. Who are those people? Well, generally do you have those... their names in their emails? <laughs> I, yeah, actually, I do have some of their emails. I, I actually do. I, I mean, would love to talk to them. Yeah. Um, 
I think human beings historically have often been dragged out of the cave and seen the light, and they've come back to try to tell the people chained to the floor about what they see that doesn't go so well, yeah. you know? Yeah. Uh, and it didn't in the story, right? No. <laughs> and this is what I've been trying to say, you know, over and over again is please stop taking your view of things on the cave floor is the thing. I mean, yeah. yeah, it's something it's, I guess it's the cave, it's the shadows, but it's just, this isn't reality. It's not what's out there. It's not, or not, it's not even out there. It's just, it's not reality. Yeah. I, I have, um, if, if again, you don't mind me entering into the woo space. <laughs> no, uh, I, I, again, the woo space is just a name that secular materialist oriented people call this because they don't understand it and they don't like it Yeah, because basically what it says is your knowledge is partial and you actually don't know everything and they don't want to hear that. And so they call it woo to make fun of it, but it's just a rhetorical device and it's kind of silly at the end of the day. I think it's a fun word and I use it endearingly. Yeah, I know you do, but these people who use it, I mean, they do not use it endearingly. Yeah, they, yeah, that's true. they use it quite dismissively and frankly meanly. Yeah. And and this, I think one of the reasons I use that word is because I know that as soon as I enter into the space, however we want to define it, my language because it it's just so clear that my language isn't as rehearsed and it there are moments where I don't even feel like I have the words to describe whatever I'm thinking, which is a strange place to be. Um, but let's <laughs> permit me to be in the space for a second. Do you think there's an, there's a modern astro, astro, mm, astrologically aware rewrite of Plato's allegory, of the cave <laughs> Yeah, that might, confound us a little bit where okay you turn around you go up the cave that in and of itself is is seems to be a very rare journey <laughs> for perhaps the best among us and of course then you see the light which is the sun yeah knowing what we know now there are many many suns right 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 so so is there a rewrite that we should start to consider yeah when we think about you know, these layers of truths or however we want to describe yeah. this. Where yeah, is there, is there a star beyond our yeah. star Yeah, that we should be interested in a, in sort of a metaphorical way? Yeah. No, there are lots of people in this space. Again, I have their emails, um, <laughs> you know, and some of them, I mean, I really have their emails, Kevin. I'm not joking. I, I mean, some of them, um, you know, somebody who comes to mind is Bernardo Castro. I don't know if you've read any Bernardo Castro, but no. he's a computer scientist and a physicist with now a philosophy PhD. He's Dutch. Um, and he started a foundation called the Essentia Foundation. And he's basically, basically making the argument I'm trying to make is that, you know, consciousness is consciousness and it's fundamental. It's what really is at the base of all reality and what we think of as real is actually not real. It's it's a it's a it's a projection or emanation of this this cosmic mind. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, I think there are lots of people in this space. I think the zeitgeist is actually moving pretty quickly. Hmm. Um, 
I think if you talk to neuroscientists, for example, who are philosophically sophisticated, they will tell you point blank that neuroscience is never going to get us to an explanation of mind or consciousness hmm. because it looks like consciousness or mind is actually not a material product. Hmm. Um, they'll say, we can tell you all about the brain. We'll, we'll tell you even more as the decades tick by. I mean, we'll just learn more and more about the brain, but it's sort of like learning more and more about your, your cell phone and never thinking about the internet or the Wi-Fi that it's picking up. Hmm. Um, and I think that's kind of where we're at. There are, of course, neuroscientists who think that mind is just brain, period. But I just think they're mistaken. Um, and I think people like Bernardo Kastrup think they're mistaken as well. And Bernardo is, you know, was a hard-nosed materialist. He was a computer scientist. So, yeah, I mean, I'm not alone. I mean, I'm strange and weird, but I'm not that strange or weird. I, I sort of, you know, I sort of inhabit a, a group of lots of people who are basically trying to say the same thing. No, I, I'm I'm all about it. Yeah. Very, very interesting. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm painfully aware of the time. So I want to give us an off ramp here, although I do get the sense that I could keep asking you questions. For, <laughs> it's all right. For it's a all right. Time. No, no, it's all right. I appreciate your questions. And I hope you understand. I don't have answers to all your questions, but no, I love it. But I'm going to tell you when I don't have an answer. Yeah. You know? Yeah, it's, that's uh, alarmingly rare. <laughs> <laughs> And, and refreshing in a way. Um, okay, I'm going to hit a stop the recording. And if you don't mind, just hang it on for a second after. And I sure. can sign off Absol and try to get Absol as many of those emails as possible. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, thank you again. All right.